Dustin Hoffman happily adds a new son to his family. While Steve Martin reluctantly adds a son to his family. Coming up next on Out of Touchstone. Yes, the classic standard, The Way You Look Tonight. That is a version by Steve Terrell, which comes from our second movie. Welcome to Out of Touchstone. My name is Mike DeKalb. Across the Skype line is my co-host, Chad Smart. Chad, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. You know, we're here in 2021, and we're all excited to get out of 2020. And I think, you know, as Wonder Woman 84 tells us, be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Well, I wish for some good movies to wound to wind up the year of 1991 and touch on, and I think we got them. And so I'm really excited to get into this episode. And let's just jump right into it. Our first episode, our first movie, excuse me, was released on November 1st of 1991, and it's the gangster thriller Billy Bathgate. From Touchstone Pictures, critics are calling Billy Bathgate the motion picture event of the season. Time Magazine calls it superior filmmaking. Billy Bathgate is dynamite. You're my prodigy. Dustin Hoffman is brilliant. His performance is explosive. Let me explain something to you in plain English. And the movie itself is a triumph. Dustin Hoffman, Nicole Kidman, Lauren Dean, Bruce Willis, Billy Bathgate, rated R. Yes, the film was based on a 1989 novel by E.L. Doctorow. He's best known for writing historical fiction, uh, the, the movie, the book Ragtime, which was later adapted into a famous film. Um, his book, Billy Bathgate, actually won several awards and was the runner-up for the 1990 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Uh, before the book was even published, Disney had bought the rights in 1988 for $1 million. To adapt the screenplay, they hired Tom Stoppard, who was a distinguished British playwright whose work goes all the way back to the mid-1960s. Three of his plays won the Tony Award as Best Play. That was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, Travesties, and The Real Thing. He'd also written a lot of teleplays and TV movies for the BBC. His film work was almost exclusively, exclusively literary adaptations, uh, with the notable exception of the movie Brazil, the 1985 Terry Gilliam film, for which he received a co-writing credit and an Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay. Stoppard also wrote the screenplay for Steven Spielberg's film Empire of the Sun, which led him to doing an uncredited rewrite on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I did not, did not know that. Uh, his most recent films, he had two writing credits in 1990. Uh, they were the film adaptation of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, which he also directed, and also the Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer film The Russia House. Chad, you said you watched that one recently. I did. I, I was not familiar with it. And I have to say, I would recommend giving that a watch if you haven't seen it. It's... It's just a, a story that, uh, out of the ordinary, I'll say. You know, it's, it, 
it was something different, which, you know, as the more movies I continue to watch on my unnecessary watch list, uh, I, I, I appreciate anything that goes out of the norm. Yeah, and that is, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't that based on a novel by like John le Carre? Or, you know, like he does a lot of those sort of, it's not spy thrillers, mm. but this one was kind of had romance. I remember, I remember the movie, but I never mm. actually saw it. Yeah, I'm sure it's based on a book because everything's based on a book. Well, and again, I said, that's all I, Tom Stafford ever writes. Is I know. I'm waiting on the Where's Waldo movie. <laughs> okay, so for, for, well, we said Tom Stafford wrote the screenplay, but who's going to direct Billy Bathgate? Of course, they hired the very talented writer-director Robert Benton. I did not know this. His first writing credit was Bonnie and Clyde back in 1967, which he got an Oscar nomination. Uh, throughout the 1970s, he was one of the writers of What's Up, Doc, and Richard Donner's Superman. And he got another Oscar nomination for his screenplay of the film The Late Show, which I think was Art Carney. I've never heard or seen that one. Yeah, uh, His biggest hit came in 1979 with Kramer vs. Kramer. It was the Best Picture winner, and it also earned Robert Benton Oscars for Best Screenplay and Best Director. He got two more Oscar nominations for the 1984 film Places in the Heart, and he won for Best Screenplay. His most recent credit before Billy Bathgate was as writer-director of the 1987 film Nadine. Another one of the ones I remember the trailer, Jeff, ba- Jeff Bridges, Kim Basinger, but dude, I never saw it. Is that, is that one of the ones you saw on your rewatch recently? I, I have not seen that one. I've looked. I don't think it's streaming anywhere for free at the current moment. Um, yeah, it's one that I remember the video cover well, and I remember either Siskel and Ebert reviewing it or the Nickelodeon teen film review show Rated K for Kids. So I remember like one scene, mm. and that's all I know of that film, yeah. Yeah, I can picture like a trailer or TV commercials back in the day, yeah. Well, we got an Oscar-winning director, an Oscar-nominated writer, so why not have an Oscar-winning star play the real-life mobster Dutch Schultz? That would be Dustin Hoffman. He was... Hollywood royalty at this point, going all the way back to his star-making performance in 1967's *The Graduate*. He'd stayed on the A-list from that point on, with you know excellent performances in films like *Midnight Cowboy*, *Straw Dogs*, *Lenny*, *All the President's Men*. One of the greatest movies ever made. Um, he, of course, he was in *Kramer vs. Kramer*. He won an Oscar for that. *Tootsie*, and he got a, and he had a second Oscar for 1988's *Rain Man*. His most recent film before this was the 1990 touchstone film *Dick Tracy*. I did see, uh, just curious to look at his entire career, he had six Oscar nominations for Best Actor, and he won twice. What was interesting is he was 54 years old at, at the time the film came out, where, spoiler, the gangster Dutch Schultz that he plays in the film was 33 when he died. So, I mean, I guess Hollywood does it all the time, right? AJ, nothing but a number. Yeah. And, well, starring opposite him is... is uh, Nicole Kidman, who's still on her rise, talk about age, another number. She was like, I think she was like barely 20, 22, I think, when this movie came out. Um, she had mostly done film and TV movies in her native Australia. I know, Chad, you're a huge fan of BMX Bandits. The best perm in Holly, or Australian movie history. <laughs> but of course, Kidman's Hollywood breakthrough came with the 1989 thriller Dead Calm. And then in 1990, she did Days of Thunder with, with her brand new husband, Tom Cruise. Her most recent credit before Billy Bathgate was a 1991 Australian film called Flirting, 
which she starred opposite Tandy Newton. Now, that film was not released in the United States until 1992, but I bought that movie on DVD several years ago back when Borders was still open. Pour a little on the curb for Borders. It's a fantastic movie, like a really good coming-of-age drama about these school kids in Australia. And uh, she she plays like the kind of the mean girl, and Tandy Newton is sort of the new girl, the new girl in class. And stuff. Say, have you seen Dead Calm? I have seen Dead Calm. I, yeah. I, there was a while there where I I was buying, I was really hung up on Nicole Kidman and buying a lot of her movies. I actually bought Billy Bathgate on DVD, so I've had it for years. And Dead Calm was one of the movies that I bought. That's a good movie for only being three people in the whole movie. Yeah, because it's Sam Neill and Billy Zane, right? Billy Zane, yeah. Yeah. Oh. And it's literally just three people on two boats and for the entire movie. There's no one else in the cast. And so, yeah, no, that's when people who bought a ticket for Titanic and saw Billy Zane should have known something was up. <laughs> well, we also have in Billy Bathgate, we also have Bruce Willis. You know, he was a bona fide star ever since the TV series Moonlighting debuted in the mid-1980s. His film career had taken off soon after that, highlighted by the first two Die Hard films. And he was also the voice of the baby Mikey in the first two Look Who's Talking films. He'd done some drama as well. He, there was a movie called In Country where he played the Vietnam vet. And then also, do you remember Mortal Thoughts, that psychological thriller? I, I know it exists, and I'm trying to find a copy to watch, but I have not seen it. Yeah. Well, his most recent work before Billy Beth, it included two much maligned films that I really enjoy to this day. And that is 1990's Bonfire of Vanities, Brian De Palma. And I know I've mentioned this movie several times on our show but Hudson Hawk, I'm a huge fan of Hudson Hawk. That was released in May of 1991, six months before Billy Bathgate. Rounding out, rounding out the principal actors, we have the titular character of Billy Bathgate was played by Lauren Dean. You know, he's a relative newcomer. He only had two film roles, uh, 1987's Plain Clothes, which I think you and I talked about that off, off screen. That was the John Cryer hiding out sort of uh, similar film with, with Arliss Howard. And, yes, uh, yeah, we were talking about that with... Uh... On a Zoom call with friends earlier, or late last yeah. year. Yeah, our good friend Pam was a big fan of that one. I, I, I may have to look that one up, yeah. And the other film Lauren Dean was in was the 1989 film Say Anything, which ah, I still did not, have not seen it to this day. I love Cameron Crowe. I just have not, haven't gotten around to it. Um, he'd also done several episodes of the soap opera As the World Turns. Um, of course, the film has an outstanding supporting cast, and I wanted to bring a highlight to the great Stephen Hill, you know, at the time that Billy Bathgate was released, he had just begun a 10-year stint on Law & Order. But he'd also starred as Daniel Briggs on the first season of Mission Impossible. I give my credit to my wife. She's a big fan of that TV show. She recognized him instantly. He, Everyone just assumes, oh, Peter Graves played Jim Phelps. Oh, no, no. The first season of Mission Impossible was Stephen Hill. He Apparently, there was rumors that he was hard to work with. And he was also an Orthodox Jew. And he objected to having to work on Saturdays. So he was replaced after the first season by Peter Graves, and then they never looked back. Uh, I did see in the, some interesting casting notes is that John Malkovich was originally cast to play the character of Otto Berman before Stephen Hill replaced him. John Malkovich is 30 years younger than him. I, I think that what made that movie work, what made his performance in this film work, is that he was this older, kind of wiser guy. I, I don't know if it would have been as good with John Malkovich playing that role. Uh, rounding up the supporting cast, I know Chad, we always like our character actors. You get Steve Buscemi, comes back to Touchstone. He had been in New York Stories. He was also in the Coen Brothers films Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink. Uh, we have Stanley Tucci. I didn't realize he, before this, he'd only just done bit parts. He has a good, good, solid supporting role playing the gangster Lucky Luciano. And then there's also one of those faces that you just know when you see him. 
It's M- Mike Starr. He was in a Touchstone film, uh, Offbeat, but you'd recognize him if you saw him, right? I think he's oh, yeah. in like Dumb and Dumber and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, I'm glad you put him on here because he was in my notes uh, to point out because, yeah, he's a guy that I recognize. I think the first time I ever took notice of him was in Dumb and Dumber. He's the guy that they give the hot sauce to or something like that. And he has, he. Mm. I think he dies from um, whatever, <laughs> but, but he's like... Like you said, he's that face that now whenever he pops up, I'm like, oh, there's Mike Starr. And I believe he shared the name with one of our film professors at uh, Southern Illinois University. Um, Oh, really? I think Mike Starr was his name or Starr. I could be mistaken because I switched to radio television as a major before taking his classes. But yeah, that's why it's always stuck out to me. And I believe the original bass player of Alice in Chains is, is with Michael Starr. So I, and I think with the same spelling with two R's yeah. and Starr. Who knows? Small world. All right. Well, we'll just get into it. We always like to look at, if we're going to, for our film discussions, break it down into positives and negatives. Chad, I'll let you start. Can you give me a positive from Billy Batgate? Well, you know, you mentioned earlier how the book uh, was a runner-up for the Pulitzer Prize and, and the screenplay was, or the rights were optioned before the book was even out. I tried reading the book just to do, you know, a bunch of research and, and compare it to the source material. And I got about 15 pages in and gave up. I, I, I'm curious to go back and finish it now that I've seen the movie just to see how they differ. But I will say my positive was, um, in my notes, I say, like Shakespeare, this story is better when you see it being unfolded in front of you instead of trying to read it and make sense. Um, and that's about uh, all I have is... The, the it just did not jump off the page at me. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I applaud you for take biting the bullet and trying to read the book. I mean, I wonder if that's how Dr. Rose's fiction reads. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the positives that I actually had from the film was the script. Like, I, I really felt that it was, it was tight, it was nuanced, it was really easy to pull viewers in. Like, I think it definitely balanced the violent aspects of mobster life with the drama of Billy's coming of age. You know, and it's funny, it was... You know, after reading into the film, I did a bit of a deep dive on Wikipedia and I saw that it's very historically accurate, you know, which is I mean, that's something that Il Doctoro is known for with, with all of historical fiction. And I mean, I think you mentioned it in the book and the movie. They both they both start in the middle of the film. Like what mm-hmm. I like, you know, it's such a such a contrivance. You see a lot of movies where they start at the end and then you have a voiceover saying, well, how did I get here? And then it, and it goes back. Whereas this one, you know, it feels like you're jumping into the story halfway through and then the scene that plays out at the beginning of the film it gets resolved in the middle of the film and then you have a whole other second half of the film to res- you know to resume after that flashback it's, it's kind of different I, you know and i think i remember reading a lot of of quotes that or maybe it was on the cover of the dvd box but it was like all about the rise and fall of this gangster dutch schultz but i like that it wasn't really about they didn't really focus on the rise it was really about the fall like when the movie begins he's already at this high level and you're going to see his downfall. And I, I don't know. I, I just thought that allowed it to be more focused. And I'm wondering, like, do you think this movie would have been any better or worse if you would have seen Dutch Schultz on his way up? Or do you, do you prefer it where he's already on top? You know, I think it worked. It can work the way it is. And, and we'll get to my negatives. I actually have points about the story. But I think, you know, given... Given the way Lauren Dean's character and his friends talk about Dutch Schultz at the beginning of the film, like you, I don't think you need to see the 
the rise of the character. I think they set him up perfectly and, um, and yeah, and it just goes from there. So I think coming in at that high point of his life, yeah, just focus on the, on the downfall. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I like that sometimes he, it, it tends to make these gangster movies a little bit more epic. I don't know if we need a three hour version of Billy Bathgate. I wonder if maybe that's what they thought when they first optioned the book, but I'm glad they didn't go that route. Yeah. Do you have uh, any other positives from the film? Well, I was just going to say, get your opinion on this. I, I am not familiar with Lauren Dean, um, even though I saw Plain Clothes back in the 80s. For some reason, I don't remember it 30-odd years later. But to me, he came off as a mixture of like that like late 80s Tom Cruise mixed with Matthew Modine. And I know we've okay. had both of them on Touchstone Films. So sure. I was going to get your opinion on if, if that uh, jumped out to you, or do you agree with that assessment, or... Yeah, I mean, I could see he's he's got a little bit more Modine, I think, you know, and not just because he has Dean in his name, but I really I really think yeah, that is the not, haircut too. Over, well, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I could see him be more Modine than Cruz. I, I still think I know you don't agree, but I think Tom Cruise is a fantastic actor, and I, I don't mean, and I think Lauren Dean. You know, that was one of the questions I had watching this movie was I'm wondering how come he wasn't a bigger star because I thought mm-hmm. he was he was pretty good in the movie. I remember him in the late '90s. He's in a really good sci-fi movie. Uh, called Gattaca, the Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman one. I remember him from that, but for the most part, I mean, and I know he's going to show up in a couple touchstone movies, you know, about, about 10 years after this, but otherwise, I mean, he's a, he's good. I just wonder if it's just, I don't know. Is it, is it tough to really carve out a, like, I feel like young actresses are the ones when they get famous at 20, they have, a, they, you know, they get, they have 10 years of just superstardom. Whereas it seems like with, with male actors, I don't know. It, not as common. I think there's, I wonder if there's more male actors than there are female actors. And so they, they, it's easy to find, you know, get him, get him. And then, it, and it's like Lauren Dean's kind of third or fourth down the list. And he doesn't even get a chance to audition for some of these parts or missed out. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Or as we've discussed, you know, there aren't a lot of strong female roles, it seems. So maybe you're getting the same female actors over and over again to play roles once they become popular. Yeah. And that was, that actually kind of leads into one of my positives from the film is that I think that the acting in this movie is phenomenal and that's all around. I mean, like, I think you can really see Nicole Kidman's star in the making. Dustin Hoffman has just the supreme acting talent to pull off this role as the head of a crime syndicate. Like he's very imposing, but he's almost likable, you know, and I, I think you always know what you're going to get from Bruce Willis and, and he's really solid in this film. And, and like I mentioned before, I want to give a special shout out to Stephen Hill. He is outstanding as Otto Berman, the accountant for Dutch Schultz. Mr. Berman, what are we going to do? He killed that man. Forget it. Didn't see anything. He didn't hear anything. Nothing happened. You even think about it again. You're as good as dead. You understand? Now listen to me, kid. You're the upcoming generation. Things are going to be different for you. You need different skills from these guys. Be streamlined, not so much fire in the street. When that happens, if you're lucky, you may not have to kill anyone. What that means is, no one will have to kill you. Yeah, and he also has this really great scene at the end. I don't know if you if you remember, um, where like he fires Billy, and Billy's like just totally indignant. Like, what, what? You can't fire me. Mr. Schultz has to fire me, and he's just like, get out of here, kid. You know, because he knows that that the end is coming, and he's trying to to spare Billy. And that, that was that was a surprise. Like you said, you know. 
you know what you're going to get from Bruce Willis and Dustin Hoffman and Nicole Kidman, but I was so pleasantly surprised by Stephen Hill in this movie. What did you think of the of the cast, and especially did Stephen Hill stick out for you at all? You know, the kind of talked about it off air, but yeah, it seems like when we do our positives and negatives, we always highlight members of the of the cast. And again, you have a great cast all around, so I think um, anything less than spectacular, you would have been. Um, disappointed in. And I think everybody pulls off the role, even, you know, like you said, Nicole Kidman, you know, this is her, what, second uh, major Hollywood film or first. And I think she handled her role as well as you would expect, you know, a, a seasoned performer. And uh, the, the, the role of Stephen Hill or Stephen Hill's role as Otto, it didn't, it didn't stand out to me in a way that um, I guess it did to you, which I actually, considered to be a good thing because he's not there to be a flashy mobster. He's there mm-hmm. to handle the books and he's just doing yeah. his job. But, but yes, I agree with you. It's, it's very strong performance, but not in a flashy way. Yeah. Yeah. He's like an actor's actor. Yeah. Like I wonder if, if other people would watch actors would watch it and they would stand out to them. But I, I said, I just wasn't, wasn't expecting it. I was expecting to just, you know, be marveled by these stars. And I was sort of, my favorite performance was the one that was the guy that I, it wasn't after the fact that I realized, Oh, that's the guy from law and order. Yeah. And it was so funny. My wife was like, Hey, that's the guy from mission yeah. impossible from 30 years earlier. Yeah. And like you, you said know? earlier with, you know, had it been John Malkovich, who I think would have done a phenomenal job as well, because Malkovich is a great actor, but I think he would have been maybe a little more on the nose phrasing works in here like mm. you know I, and i'm just i don't know for some reason i'm just flashing back to rounders with his really bad russian accent which he wouldn't have had <laughs> in this movie but for some reason that's what i'm going to and even though i just watched places in the heart a week before we record this episode and he's really good as a blind man in in that movie but yeah I, it, it's definitely a different it would have been a different take on the role i think yeah we, we, we love him he's illinois native yeah. like i said he's going to he turns up in some touchdown movies here in a few years, so we'll get to talk about him soon enough. The last thing I was just going to mention, my last positive was I thought there was the very beautiful cinematography by the great Nestor Almendros. This was his final film. He died a few months after it was released. I don't know if you're overly familiar with his work, but in the late 70s and early 80s, he got four Oscar nominations in a five-year span. You know, And he was very talented. He, I like how he gives this film like a polished look. You know, For being a gangster film, it's easy to do to make this kind of gritty look, but it, it reminded me a lot of the Godfather. I know you, you and I watched the Godfather a few years back in the theater. So mm-hmm. it's easy to see how they, they were kind of going for that same look, but without being so dark and moody in a lot of the interior scenes. I, I don't know. I, I thought it looked, the movie looked good. And yeah, I was like, I said, in case you can't tell, I was, I really, really enjoyed this movie. Yeah. Uh, I guess you could say Nestor. Um, I guess you could compare him to a modern day Roger Deakins. There you go. Yeah. Um, that's for all the cinephiles listening. That's to show that I know one cinematographer. I just There's a few out him. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, if you don't yeah. have any other positives, I'll let you go to your t- – you can start with the negatives. Or did you have another positive? I don't have anything else. I think you handled it. And, you know, Mine would have been just repeating what you have highlighted. Um, a negative for me – and again, this goes back into the story and – the plot of the movie is, as we've said, this Dustin Hoffman plays this gangster who's going on trial, and they get the trial moved to upstate New York, thinking he'll have a better chance of being acquitted. And he comes in and he starts like sucking up to the townsfolk. You know, he he gives out money for charity and 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 buys people's um, wares. I guess um, I don't know. To me, that just 
one that sounds like more like a like a comedy plot point than a um, than a serious drama thing. But uh, you know, would that have worked? Would that, that can are people easily bought? And I think you know this kind of goes into one of your negatives that I see listed here. It's I don't feel like they really played up his gangster um, character very well. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, I mean. That, that, that going upstate and trying to woo the townsfolk mm. that was true i mean that really happened that's why yeah. it's so it's so hard to believe when you're watching it when you look into it you're like wow they really tried to to do that yeah like that is my biggest negative and i know it's kind of splitting hairs but i really think the film could have used more violent scenes like you said i think by not showing his, that many violent scenes it could kind of slightly glamorize the lifestyle i mean these men were criminals you know they should be depicted as such you know but at the same time I was reading a lot of uh, reports that said that there was a godson of Dutch Schultz who said that Dutch Schultz was very funny. And Dustin Hoffman was even, even complained that he did not see that reflected in the movie. They were these Jewish gangsters. They were, they were very affable, and they had a sense of humor about them, and they just left that out of the movie. So it's weird. Like, I wanted to see more violence, but I also wanted to see more comedy. We, did, we get straight drama, and again, I, I was thoroughly engaged with it. But uh-huh. yeah, I could have used a little bit more around the edges just to something different to kind of round it out. And I mean, not that we, you know, I don't necessarily like to watch violent films, but if it's about a gangster, you know, I, I give them yeah. credit. Like one of the things I liked about the movie was the, one of the very first murders that Billy has to experience. It happens off screen mm-hmm. when Dutch Schultz gangs goes into this barbershop and kills this guy. Like, and that was kind of a, I think it was a good filmmaking trick where you just hear about it afterwards. You don't, you, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need to see them all, but at the same time, I don't want people to, Look, you don't want people to look up to the Dutch Schultz character, even though it's set in the 30s. But there could have been kids in the early 90s that were like, "Well, that's kind of a cool thing to do." But yeah, you know, and then we could have got the star of Camp I Me Love and pump up the volume to go out and make their own gangster movie. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, I'm trying to think. Doesn't is Christian Slater? Is he? He's Lucky Luciano in the film Mobsters, right? You know, they're, they're all so, related. Yeah. And that's yeah. They're they're all they're all related in a way. Um, yeah. Speaking of Lucky Luciano, so uh, you lent me the DVD to watch, and unfortunately, uh, somewhere during the film, my DVD player acted up and kind of froze, and then skipped, and then like ten minutes later, the movie's over, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's way too short. I've obviously missed something, so I ended up renting the video off of Amazon, uh, not a sponsor, and. Uh, rewatching the film and rewatching, I'm like, wow, I, there's so much into this film. Um, so many character, like little thing, little nuances that I actually think watching it more than once probably is, would be wisely recommended. It should you watch it. But I felt the introduction of lucky Luciano and even the introduction of the Mike star character, Julie Martin were, weren't handled very well. Cause like mm. when, at the, towards the end of the movie, when Lucky re shows up, and you're like, "Wait, who was it? What? You know, how? Why is? Why did Dutch bring him in in the first place? Like, yeah, that that just didn't set well with me. Um, I shouldn't say it didn't okay. set well. It just like it kind of confused me. Like, wait, who is this guy? Why? Why am I? Why do I care about this character? So, again, that's just a story point, and, and that's why I would like to go back and maybe try to finish reading the book just to see how it comes off there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. I I mean, and I know it's weird to, to advocate for these things, but I do sometimes feel 
when it comes to especially when like a gangster movie like this, this movie could have been better if it was about fifteen minutes longer, mm-hmm. where they could have fleshed that stuff out. Like, like you could tell. I bet you the Lucky Luciano stuff is probably a lot more uh, played out in the book, you know. And and because it because again when I went down my, my Wikipedia deep dive, like all that stuff happened. Like there there was a rivalry between Luciano's gang and Dutch Schultz's gang, and so. But I guess because you want to make this movie about Billy in the sense, you know. I mean, again, it, it, it's. I like that they kept it to a concise running time and a little bit more focus, but they also feel like there was more to it. Like there's a whole thing with Nicole Kidman's character and Billy. Mm-hmm. Like, is there a love affair there? I think the book had them as a little bit more passionate, mm-hmm. whereas the movie just has a couple of scenes here and there. So, yeah. And actually, to be honest, that's, that's the only other negative I had from the film was that I wasn't sure if, if Billy had a strong enough arc. You know, yeah. like, do you think he do you really think he learned anything? Like he appears to to me like he didn't really change that much. And mm-hmm. I wonder if at the end of the movie, would he go back to working for another mobster if given the chance? Like, do you think he really grew in the film? I don't think he grew. I don't think there was any arc to speak of. It just, he's this kid from Brooklyn who gets picked off the street by a gangster and that's it. Like, and even like the, the subplot with Nicole Kidman is also kind of, you know, it's, 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 I don't. I don't want to say it's forced, but it kind of detracts from the Dutch Schultz story. Like you don't really see, like, mm. or, you know, does Dutch really care for her? Because the way that yeah. they come to be together, you know, it just, yeah. Like I said, I, you know, I'll get more in my review, but I like this film, but I can see the complaints with um, some of the some of the complaints that I've read about this film. Yeah, I thought I'd heard that Dustin Hoffman had a lot of complaints of the movie, and that mm-hmm. was one of them. Is that he wanted? He thought there should have been a stronger like like love triangle between them. But I guess the problem is maybe they, it would have worked if they'd have had a younger actor playing Dutch, you know. And that's why I think it was a little bit weird because I mean I know he's fifty, he doesn't look it in the movie, yeah. but he definitely doesn't look like he's thirty. So, but yeah, uh, I mean, final thoughts, Chad. I'll just say that I I, I really thought that it was a worthy entry in the gangster film genre. You know, like I, like I said, I, I, th- I really think it was just as compelling as a movie like The Godfather without having to be as violent mm-hmm. as some of the Martin Scorsese films. What? Any final thoughts? No. Again, I'm glad I saw this film. And, you know, Rolling Stone, I saw, named it one of Hoffman's 20 essential roles. So it's good from a historical perspective to, to watch it. But, but yeah, I, I actually think I maybe want to go back and re rewatch it just because I think there are subtle things that I've missed out on the first one and a half times watching. Yeah, yeah, could be. All right, I would like to look at what I call the the touchstone touch. If what what could have made could this have been a Disney film? No, 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 no. no it's, it's an R-rated period piece. I you know I give Disney credit for making it, but I don't know if it could ever fit in. And then of course because it's set in the 30s, there's really no references to Disney in the film as well. Uh, before we give our final review on the film, Chad, what some of the other reviews of the time from the critics? All right. Well, starting off as I like to do with Roger Ebert's review, he says, here is the story of a young man so bland and colorless that even becoming the protege of a gangster doesn't make him interesting. Two stars. Wow. Um, from Joanna Berry of Empire Magazine says, with Oscar-winning Kramer versus Kramer director Benton at the helm and the superb E.L. Doctoro novel as a source, this should have been a film to rival Goodfellas and The Godfather. Somewhere along the line, however, and despite vibrant performances from Bruce Willis and Nicole Kidman, interest in the film wanes. 
two stars. And then my last one is Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly says, how can a movie be smooth, tasteful, completely competently acted, handsomely photographed and dull? See, you I just I, I feel like film critics in that in that time frame, like I said, mm-hmm. what do we mention? Bonfire of the Vanities, Hudson yeah. Hawk. I, man, I just think they were so harsh. Now you look at it 30 years later and I, I mean, it sounds like you you and I both enjoyed the film enough. And yep. I mean, what but is it, I, I sometimes I wonder if these critics, they see too many movies or if it's if they see too many dramas in a row. Are they mm. do they want to do they want to see something comedic and they get another drama? They're like, uh, and then they kind of knock it down. I did not think. I heard that like so many of the reviews were bad and we'll get into the box office, which was, which was a very subpar as well. And I'm like, I don't get it. What, what am I missing? Cause I really loved it. And I'll just go into it and say on a scale of one to 10, Chad, I know this might seem like a surprise, but I I'm going to give it a solid eight. Okay. Like I really thought again, it's an excellent cast. It's a thoroughly engaging story. And this is one of those ones that I just, I loved it. I was never bored. I loved it from beginning to end. I'm glad I, you know, it's so funny is I, I had the DVD. I figured, I'd watch it, and then maybe when I'm done, I can donate it to the library or something. But now I'm like, you know, I think I might hold on to this DVD a little bit longer in case I want to watch it again. Yeah, I had a hard time. And you make a good point because as as I've hinted to on this podcast before, like my movie watching has been kicked up at several notches over the last three or four months. And so I am at that point where I think I've watched so many films that, you know, like I said earlier, that something out of the ordinary – stands out to me, whereas something that is just run-of-the-mill is just kind of bland. And I think maybe that's the way with critics, where – and it also depends on, you know, what time – how you're feeling when you watch a film. And, mm-hmm. you know, these critics are watching at a specific time and not being able to choose, you know, wanting to see a film maybe. So I – like I said, I like this film. It was more – it was better than I anticipated and – um, and watching it the second time around, I really got into it. I, I, I like I said, I have my qualms with some of the uh, story pacing and, and introductions, but I, I give this movie a seven. Like I wow. think, I think this is a movie that I would easily recommend and tell people to watch. And yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why the critics were so harsh on this film. I mean. I can see Lauren Dean isn't probably the most charismatic person, but I don't think, again, kind of going back to uh, what I said about the character of Otto, like these characters aren't flashy. This isn't, I guess, like good. And, um, you know, maybe this Goodfellas came out in 91 as well, correct? They came out in 90, I believe. Oh, 90. Okay, 90. So maybe coming on the heels of such a successful gangster film, that has a lot of similarities in, in style or in story. Maybe that's altered or affected the critics, you know, perception of it as well. Yeah. And I wonder if, if it's like you said, the, the flashiest character in the movie is Dustin Hoffman, who's not really the protagonist, right? Mm-hmm. Like you would think that the idea of Billy Bathgate is the name of the, the name of the movie. And I wonder if like you said, if they would have had someone who was more polished, a little more, more veteran actor, playing that you know nothing nothing against lauren dean i thought he was good but when he's just he's just secondary like it's weird like that he's just he's the the, you're you find yourself more drawn to a character that's supposedly a supporting character you know unless you make this movie take the billy bathgate story and remake it like we always like to talk about the next thing actually the next thing i was going to bring up was if there's any sequel or remake potential as far as a sequel i don't i really don't think it's you know the way the film is set up i don't think it allows for a sequel but I think a remake could work. And I'm going to ask you, like, do you think a remake could work where what if you took the source material 
And then you made it about Dutch Schultz. Hmm. Like, you don't have to call it Billy Bathgate. You could have the Billy Bathgate character in there. And maybe you, if, you, if you did a thing where you made it like a, a limited series yeah. where you could make it four hours, five hours, and then kind of have a little bit of the, the Dutch Schultz backstory, bring Billy in later. But then I think Dutch is the most interesting character. He's the one you want to see, Dutch and Otto and then his henchman, Steve Buscemi, you know, hmm. those guys, the, the mobsters, you know, I mean, whatever, for whatever reason, people are enthralled by mobster movies, I think. And we hadn't really mentioned it, but even Steve Buscemi, like, does he have any dialogue in this film? Because off the top of my head, I don't think I think he's just there in key scenes to be kind of the muscle. But, yeah, I, I think if you did a limited series based on the Dutch Schultz gang, maybe you have a better yeah. storyline. Oh, yeah, because supposedly, again, Steve Buscemi and the other character, I can't remember his name. They are they're Those are real people as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like you could really dig into those and ah, you, that could be pretty good. Um, OK, so but from a trivia standpoint, uh, you know, once again, Touchstone film, we, they love shooting in North Carolina. And so all those scenes that were supposed to take place in upstate New York in, this, in the second act of the film were filmed in a town called Hamlet. Uh, interesting. We got Tom Stopper writing the screenplay and we're filming in a movie in a town called Hamlet. And, that, and they used this city in, in this town in North Carolina called Hamlet because it was relatively unchanged since the 1930s. And there was the, the opening scenes are shot on this tugboat. They said the exteriors of the tugboat were filmed in New York, but all the interiors were shot in a soundstage that they built in North Carolina as well, where they had to have people like rocking the ship and they can only keep so many people on the boat at a time because it was the way that the camera was mounted. Um, the, the, I think we kind of alluded to it a little bit, but there was a lot of tension on this movie and there was delays in filming. It was originally set to be released on June 28th, but that date was pushed after the final film was when, when the final cut was turned in by by Benton. It was rejected by Disney. Dustin Hoffman didn't like it, and supposedly Robert Benton didn't even, didn't even like the final cut. So they had to they had to do some reshoots. But Dustin Hoffman and Nicole Kidman weren't available that entire summer, so they had to, they ended up filming all the way into October and then pushed the, the release till November 1st. I read that. Dustin Hoffman was doing Hook at the time and couldn't get away. And so they wanted, Benton wanted to come back for like two weeks of shooting. And the best that Dustin Hoffman could give him was like one weekend. Mm. And so the two of them, they said, they they ended up reshooting the ending. The the ending doesn't match the book. Supposedly, Il Doctoro disavowed the movie because he didn't like how it it didn't compare to the book. Uh, Dustin Hoffman supposedly wanted to do more reshoots because he didn't like how it worked. But Disney denied him because the release date was so uh, pending, I guess it was fast, quickly coming up. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, I thought I heard something that they said they even referred to it as like Billy Gate. You know, it's, it's, I'm sure what, what, so what I find ironic, the fact that you and I both like this, you've always heard that some of the most tumultuous film sets end up producing some of the, the most, the best films, mm-hmm. right? And I've heard actors say all the time that if they ever made a movie that where everybody got along and they were all so happy, then the final product usually ends up not being good. Mm-hmm. But they don't care. But I, I love Apocalypse Now, and I know that was a nightmare to make it. So, um, I looked. It was like look at the soundtrack, and you know, as you might, as you might expect from a period piece set in the 1930s, the music is mostly standards. They just play in the background at nightclubs or scenes where characters are listening to old records. So I didn't really kind of. I don't want to use a song from this movie in the opening. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well I alluded to it earlier. Let's look at the box office performance. As you mentioned, it, it opened on November 1st. And it finished fourth with $4.1 million. The other films that opened that same weekend were The People Under the Stairs, which finished first, Highlander 2, The Quickening, 
and a movie called Year of the Gun. Chad, do you know that one? Andrew McCarthy and Sharon Stone? I do not know that one. Yeah. Year of the Gun. Hmm. And then two touchdown movies were also on the chart. The, the, the previous two we talked about in the last episode. Deceived was 11th place, and Ernest Scared Stupid was 12th place. In its second week, Billy Bathay climbs up to third, earning $3.7 million and leapfrogging Highlander 2, which is probably a good thing. Um, but the number one movie that week was Curly Sue, which had just come out. And you had the new films that came out in the second week would have been Strictly Business, which I think I saw that one back in the day. Tommy Davidson, I want to say, Demi Wayans, maybe. And uh, All I Want for Christmas. You get Christmas movies coming out early November, right? And that usually when they, when they, when they debut. Uh, by its third week, Billy Bathgate falls all the way down to sixth place with the release of Cape Fear, which had topped the box office. And it also gets leapfrogged by All I Want for Christmas, as well as Little Man Tate, a wonderful movie with Jodie Foster uh, directed. Um, Billy Bathgate manages to stay in the top ten but just before Thanksgiving, but it gets pushed down by films such as The Addams Family, uh, Beauty and the Beast, and Amer- an American tale, Fievel Goes West. Unfortunately, it leaves theaters after only about a month, and it grosses $15.6 million on a budget of $60 million. <laughs> So, yeah, bomb territory. It just, unfortunately, I mean, I, I wonder sometimes if, 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 the, if those news stories get out and people are like, oh, there's problems on the set. Well, then this can't be good. I'm sure it's probably even worse now. But uh, yeah, I don't get I it. Believe, this should have done better. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw the story, but I, I saw somewhere where apparently Disney had the option of either this movie or the Warren Beatty movie Bugsy, which was yeah. another gangster film. And that movie was had a $40 million budget, and they considered that to be too risky of an investment so they went with billy bathgate yeah, yeah you never know bugsy didn't bugsy didn't do very well either no. i don't think but i guess that was the, that had the whole, to do with katzenberg and warren Beatty not getting along after dick tracy and so they did this instead yeah but interestingly enough it does get some awards consideration stephen hill gets the best supporting actor nomination from a couple different film critics associations the national society of film critics as well as the new york film critics circle and Nicole Kidman earns a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actress, and she loses to Mercedes Rule from The Fisher King. I always like to look at the connections with other franchises that I like. I could not find any connection to a James Bond film, and the only real Alfred Hitchcock connection was that Stephen Hill had appeared on both Alfred Hitchcock Presents back in 1957 and also on the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. He appeared on that show twice in 1964 and 1965. Personal connection... Chad, I do believe you were with me, but in 2014, uh, I used to do this Revlon 5K run walk every year that supported women's cancers, and Halle Berry was a was a sponsor of this, and so she would show up at the at the ceremonies and she would usually speak to the crowd. And in 2014, Bruce Willis was there, and when we the at the starting line when the crowd is getting together and and, and as they begin the 5K. Bruce Willis and Halle Berry were up on this like catwalk kind of waving down to people as we walked through the opening gates. So I did get close to Bruce Willis. I'm, I said, were you at that one? with I, each other? I was. Some of them. Yeah, I was at that one. I remember. And, and you know, I completely forgot about it. But that uh, year also Tom Selleck was at there. We could have mentioned that on the three men and a baby or three men and a little lady or innocent man episodes, but we did not. So here's a shout out uh, to Tom Selleck today. I totally forgot about that as well. So, All right. Well, we'll wrap up talking about Billy Bathgate. As again, I, I mentioned that there was a lot of tension between Robert Benton, Dustin Hoffman, Jeffrey Katzenberg. We said 
The budget spiraled out of control because of all the detail and filming in New York City. The film winds up losing more than $50 million, which was the biggest single failure of Jeffrey Katzenberg's career. And I want to end with this quote, which is from Katzenberg. He says, quote, there are films that you launch and they have their own guidance system. There's nothing you're going to do along the way that can really change the course of where they're headed. With Billy Bathgate, everything about it seemed great. And the souffle never rose. No. Can I can I throw in a Dustin Hoffman quote as well? Shoot. All right. He, this was an interview from 2012 when he was promoting the HBO sh- series Luck and got to talking about Billy Bathgate. And he says, you never know what you have with a movie. We were shooting in North Carolina. We had an all-star cast, this great writer-director who won an Academy Award, and we think we're doing a work of art. Next door, just 100 yards away, this other movie is being made, and I can't even pronounce the name of it. And I say, what is this POS called? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. How cocky we felt, but it goes through the roof and our movie gets buried. Ah, that's so funny. That is Billy Bathgate. See, kid, I don't start these things. I'm just as good-natured slob that people think they can walk right over. You in a gang? No, sir. No. I'd expect to learn anything. I hire from gangs. That's a training ground. Did you ever hear the Frog Hollow Gang? No, sir. Well, that was the most famous of all the Bronx gangs. That's where the original Dutch Schultz came from. He was the toughest street fighter ever lived. So they named me Dutch Schultz in my neighborhood. It was like an honorary thing. Well, most of the gangs now are just dumb kids, mostly. Is that right? I think for the real training, yeah, you got to go right to the top. Hey, Otto, you ought to listen to this kid. You'll learn something. You can choose your gang members. You can choose your friends, but... You can't always choose your family, and especially if your daughter's getting married, you can't always pick the person she decides to marry, even though you are the father of the bride. Touchstone Pictures presents Steve Martin, Diane Keaton, Martin Short, and introducing Kimberly Williams. I'm told that one day I'll look back on all of this with great affection and nostalgia. I hope so. Good night, Mr. Banks. Drive carefully. And don't forget to fasten your condom. Dad! Seatbelt, I meant. Seatbelt. Father of the bride. Yes, this was released on December 20th of 1991. It was a remake of the 1950 film that starred Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor. That film got three Oscar nominations, one for Spencer Tracy, and it also got... Best Picture and Best Screenplay nominations. It was based on a 1949 best-selling novel by Edward Streeter. And the screenplay for the film was adapted by the husband and wife writing team of Francis Goodrich, Fra- Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. They were known for writing the first three films in the Thin Man series, which I love dearly. And they also wrote It's a Wonderful Life. They, get, they, get, they still get writing credits on the remake and they share them with another husband and wife team, and that's Nancy Myers and Charles Shire. Now, Charles Shire had been a TV writer-producer throughout the 1970s on shows like The Odd Couple, The Partridge Family, Happy Days. And he was one of the writers on Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, the couple, they had been dating since the late 1970s and got married in 1980, the same year that the script that they wrote for Private Benjamin got them a Writers Guild Award and an Oscar nomination. For the rest of the decade of the 1980s, the only major projects that they did, you know, where they would co-write and co-produce and Charles Shire would direct 
were the 1984 film Irreconcilable Differences and also 1987's Baby Boom, which was later turned into a TV series that the two had co-produced. In addition, I saw that they had received story credit for a film we talked about in our last episode, the 1984 Goldie Hawn Vehicle Protocol. And they also received screenplay credits for Jumping Jack Flash, the Whoopi Goldberg film in 1986, except they used pseudonyms for that one. I remember Jumping Jack Flash. I don't remember. I, I think it's been panned, but enough to where people would take their names off the yeah. script. Did you, ever, did you ever see Jumping Jack Flash? Oh, I, I saw it on probably video and cable, and I can understand why they use pseudonyms. Yeah, I don't remember. The only thing I remember about that movie is there's a scene where uh, Whoopi Goldberg's dress gets caught in a paper shredder, and she's stuck, and her dress is shredded. That's all I remember. One more name. I, again, I don't, I don't always necessarily bring up producers of films, but I couldn't help but notice there was two names that were executive producers on this films, and, and that is James Orr and Jim Crookshank. Touchstone fans, I recognize them because they had written Tough Guys, Three Men and a Baby, and Mr. Destiny, which was also directed by James Orr. Um, I'm guessing they were probably involved in the writing process. I read something on the AFI's website that said that they were listed on a, on a Hollywood Reporter production chart as being the writers at one point, but they do not have, they do not get credits for this film. Um, as you've seen, you know, there's a lot of articles that are written about 15 things you don't know about Father of the Bride or 10 things you didn't know. They always seem to bring up the fact that the movie was always designed for Steve Martin. You know, he was always going to be the lead. He was, of course, he's a legend, even though he's a writer and stand-up comedian throughout the 1970s. He'd hosted Saturday Night Live several times back in the day. I, I always forget, he was never a cast member of SNL. He just hosted it a lot during those first few seasons in the 70s. His movie stardom takes off with 1979's The Jerk, followed by very prolific work throughout the 1980s in films like Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, All of Me, Little Shop of Horrors, Roxanne, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Chad, I'll give you a chance. What is the best Steve Martin film of the 1980s? Uh, I, I think I'm going to have to go probably... And I wish you could see me do the salute here, but I'm going to have to go with Three Amigos. Oh, you are correct, sir. That is the best movie that he had done. <laughs> uh, but he wrapped up the 1980s by also appearing in Parenthood, which was a huge success, and that led to even bigger roles. The last few films he did before this was I Love My Blue Heaven, which came out in 1990. That's the Nora Ephron script with him and Rick Moranis. Such a good movie. And then he did two other films in 1991. One of them was L.A. Story, which had come out that February. And what I thought was funny was, you know, Father of the Bride came out on December 20th, and yet C. Martin had another film that came out after Father of the Bride, yet still in the same calendar year. Grand Canyon was released on Christmas Day. Starring opposite Steve Martin is the great Diane Keaton. She was returning to Touchstone for the first time since 1988's The Good Mother. Supposedly, as the story goes, Jeffy Katzenberg wasn't keen on hiring her due to the box office failure of The Good Mother, but... Shire and Myers, the husband and wife team, convinced him to hire her. She'd only had two starring roles in the meantime since The Good Mother, and that was 1989's The Lemon Sisters and the 1990 film The Godfather Part Three. And, of course, she had also previously starred in the film Baby Boom, which with Shire and Myers. Now, for the role of the daughter, the bride, Phoebe Cates was cast. But two weeks before production began, she had to drop out because she was pregnant. So she was replaced by... Kimberly Williams, who was making her film debut. She was 20 years old and was a sophomore at Northwestern University. She had left school to star in the film. She later went back and completed her degree. I think I saw that she had had like one other, I don't know if it was a TV credit, but this was the very first movie that she'd ever done. 
And, of course, we get the flashy support role for Martin Short. This was the second of five touchstone films for Martin Short, the first since 1989's Three Fugitives, which the less we talk about, the better. Um, he, in, in the meantime, he had an uncredited part in the 1989 movie The Big Picture, and also he had starred in the 1990 comedy Pure Luck. I think we talked about that. That was a remake of a French film and that was made by the people who did the original film that Three Fugitives was based on. That whole, that whole thing. Um, rounding out the supporting cast, uh, faces touched on people might recognize. George Newbern, you know, he was in Adventures in Babysitting. And I for, totally forgot until recently somebody posted it on social media, but he plays the lead detective in the failed pilot Puchinski. If you remember Puchinski, if you haven't, go on YouTube and watch it. That's the cop gets killed and reincarnated into the body or into a bulldog voiced by is it Peter Boyle, I think, is Puchinski. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, also in the supporting cast, we have B.D. Wong. I didn't know, not know he was he had only been in a couple movies before this. He was in The Freshman and also Mystery Date. And then we have Macaulay's brother, Kieran Culkin. He was in Home Alone and Only the Lonely were the only two movies he'd done before this. Apparently, I don't think he even had speaking roles. They said supposedly Father the Bride was this first speaking role. Uh, we'll just get into it. Uh, as far as some positives and negatives, I, I'll start with my first positive. It's hard to describe, but I just I really think the film has a certain warmth to it. You know, there's the the enjoyment of returning to your family as well as adding new family members. I mean, maybe it just because it reminds me of my own situation when I first met my wife's family. But I just I think it really kind of hits at that heart. And it also, in a way, like it addresses the pain and anxiety of separation, you know, and moving away and the daughter growing up. Like it's like I said, it's kind of hard to quantify it, Chad. I don't know how else to say it, but there was just sort of like, like I said, there's a warmth as you're watching it. It put a smile on your face. And yeah, I, I, I liked being around this family for, for a couple of hours. I can see that. And, you know, I was talking about this movie with, uh, with some friends uh, after watching it. And, and I had never seen this movie until researching it for this podcast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I said, I watched it alone by myself. And I said, I think this, I would have had a different experience if I was watching it with say on a date or with someone um yeah sure. I'm lonely you can send uh <laughs> your your love letters and everything anyway um yeah I I'll be honest with you I don't have any positives that stood out that any I don't have anything that jumped out at me that I can sig sig single out as a positive for this film yeah that's a, I think one of the things I, issues I have with the movies that it was just it's just kind of there. Yeah, you know it's fine. I, I would imagine, that considering all the movies that you're watching on your own, it's just it was just another one that you file in there. Yeah, and that's kind of what like the whole time I'm watching it, I, I found myself more drawn to the flaws than the positives. Mm -hmm. But I did like like I said, I I mean it's a comedy, so you know they're going to exaggerate stuff like as far as meeting the family, they got to make him kind of annoying and insufferable, but. I mean, I was in that position, not necessarily with my, my, my wife's father, but when I first, the first people I had to meet from her family were her mother and grandmother. And we all went out to dinner and that I was incredibly nervous. Mm -hmm. So I can understand that. And I wonder if the people that enjoy this film are, might be people who are the parents, mm -hmm. you know, who had their own kids and can, it can relate to that sort of empty nest syndrome. You know, I mean, I did have one more positive from the film, and that is, again, we always talk about there's usually one good performance in these movies. And for me, it was Diane Keaton. 
Like, I really thought, you know, just like the wife and mother and most families, she's an absolute rock. Like, she's the voice of reason. She's the most sensible one. There's that there's that scene where Steve Martin's in jail, waka waka, and she has to go bail him out, and she has to kind of talk sense to him. I'll get you out of here on one condition, Banks, that you agree to the following. Now repeat after me. I, George Stanley Banks. I, George Stanley Banks. Promise to pull it together and act my age. Promise. Promise to pull it together and act my age. I will stop hyperventilating, rolling my eyes, unbuttoning my top collar button. I don't unbutton my oh, top collar. Oh, yeah, no. Collar. Like, you mean this bit? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I will stop hyperventilating, rolling my eyes, and uh, unbuttoning my top collar button. I will stop making faces in general, and I will definitely stop telling everybody I meet how much this wedding is costing. I don't tell everyone how much it costs. <clears throat> he told you, right? It's 150 ahead. Oh, well, thanks. And to be honest with you, Chad, I think the film probably could have used more of Diane Keaton. You know, I know it's called Father of the Bride, but I was a little bit more interested in her because maybe it's because it, the, the, it was, it's about a daughter getting married, right? Like if it, was, if it was more about the son getting married, I think maybe the fathers and sons can relate. But I guess the whole point of this movie is that it's like, oh, but fathers and daughters. Yeah, but I think the, the mother and daughter relationship was really good too. Yeah, I can see that. I... You know, I was thinking, comparing this to a previous Touchstone movie that we we've talked about called Betsy's Wedding, where oh yeah, you know the the bride and groom are kind of just there, um, and obviously because the movie is called Father of the Bride, it's going to focus on Steve Martin's character. But yeah, I felt like it just. I, I think you've said it. It's this movie is there. It's a fine film, but there really isn't anything. Um, I don't find a lot of substance in it, but I do agree with you that I I think the, the parent relationship, um, you know, both mother and father probably could have been balanced out better instead of just focusing on Steve Martin. And I'm going to segue that into my first negative of the film in that I watched the original father of the bride a few weeks before watching this one. And and that one I found Spencer Tracy to be, you know, he's, he's, I guess, upset or, you know, he's losing his daughter and he's understanding that he's not going to be her go-to guy anymore. But there's a charm about, about him in which he's like, okay, I'm losing my daughter. This wedding's getting out of control, but he still had a likability about him. And I just found Steve Martin's character to be very negative you know he wants to have just a wedding at the texas steakhouse or whatever it's called the steak pit the steak pit yeah and i just i didn't like steve martin's character in this i thought he was oh. too much oh too I, I totally agree that was my that's my biggest fault for this movie and i i could not get past because again like you i'd never seen this movie it been out for three years i i got it from the public library on dvd you know you've seen the poster you've seen yeah. the trailer his face is everywhere he is incredibly cranky stubborn and insufferable throughout the movie and if i myself wonder maybe it's because it's it's three decades later but i'm like what is the problem and and i I don't know if it's they're trying to like you said spencer tracy kind of made it a little bit more relatable Mm -hmm. whereas i think they went for too zany yeah and and i just thought like you know he has all these insecurities in the film like he can't have no one can marry my daughter you know and it makes him very 
unsympathetic. And it reminded me a lot of Alan Alda's character in Betsy's Wedding. You know, mm-hmm. like there's scenes where he's re- he's really upset because the 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 groom's parents want to pay. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, and they they go to they go to his his their house and it's this big mansion and he's you could tell he's really really insecure on that and i just i don't know it it really to me it reeked of like upper class white people problems and it just it was kind of it was a little bit off-putting like you said the movies i get i said it had a little bit of heart and warmth to it at the same time it was more like the mom you know (laughs) the the dad just he was he was kind of annoying and and i think and that leads into my the other negative i had Mm -hmm. which was that I think that there were way too many like forced hijinks. You know, it made me really uncomfortable watching some of the scenes. Like when he's he goes, they go to the they go to the uh, groom's parents' house, and he goes to the bathroom, and then he's like snooping through their stuff. Yeah. You know, and then and then the dogs, the 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 the, the, the couple have, they have these dogs, and they find out about it, and or they they start chasing Steve Martin around the house, and it's like, oh look, it's so zany, and you're like, why are you going through their stuff? You know, and then there's there's a scene where he goes to a supermarket and he's he gets arrested because he's opening hot dog buns because he's complaining about how hot dogs come eight in a package and 12 in a bun. That old stand up comedy yeah. joke that people have used. And you're like, what? what? Why? Just 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 deal with the daughter getting married. Like, but at the same time, like without all these goofy shenanigans, like what would the movie really consist of? And it kind of makes me curious to watch the original movie. <laughs> like, I wish I would have. Yeah, that scene you talked about with the dogs and then ends up with him climbing off a balcony and being pushed into a swimming pool. I we've we've discussed it on this podcast before, but in my notes I just wrote stupid not dumb. And you know, we said dumb is good, stupid is bad. And I just that that whole scene took me out of the movie. It I was just like I was rolling my eyes throughout because it's not I didn't find it funny. I just found it and it, you know Looking at this movie 30 years on, maybe had I seen this movie when I was younger, when it came out, maybe I would have a different view of it. But, yeah, I just couldn't I couldn't get beyond the bad decisions Steve Martin's character kept making. And even, you know, um, there's the drama, you know, the end of I guess you'd say the end of act two is when the wedding is called off suddenly uh, and uh, it's like that. oh he got me a blender he doesn't think of it and it's like i you know i don't feel for her for kimberly williams's character in that scene because i'm like okay you're breaking up with him just because he bought you a blender like yeah. and i know it's all you know she's like oh i'm a strong woman i don't need i'm not going to be the housewife in the kitchen cook you know having your meal ready when you come home and all this but yeah i just i think First world problems, white people problems. You you summed it up, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I rolled my eyes at the at the breakup scene because you just it felt so forced because you're yeah. like you know they're going to get married mm-hmm. and it just it was it felt to me like they're just padding it out to kind of add the runtime. Like I, I we didn't need to have that at all, you know. And I, I, I again, this movie had more issues than positives, you know, yeah. more flaws. And I think it was like like I said, the voiceover throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. I, I did not I did not care for that. I mean. It helps establish his, the Steve Martin character, George Banks, yeah. really quickly. But then I thought it became a crutch for the rest of the movie. You know, just let the actors act. You don't have to have him just telling you what's going on in his mind. I mean, I did think it was interesting how he broke the fourth wall in the opening scene. I, I, I was different. I'm not sure I'd seen that in too many Touchstone films. But, yeah, just it's 
lots of issues. Yeah, <laughs> and, of and, issues. and that's how the original starts as well. And so I, I appreciated it, but I don't remember the original using it as much as they do in the remake. And I could be mistaken, but I, I would agree with you. I mean, I have in my notes too much exposition. It's just show, don't tell, basically. It's what you learn in script writing. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Did you have give me, yeah, any other negatives on the film? Uh, I just had too much exposition, so that was my last point yeah. as well. So, And, I, and I, of I course, ask, yes. <laughs> I was going to ask you, I think your enjoyment of this film is equal to your enjoyment of the Martin Short character, and I couldn't stand him. I, I mean, I know that, and it's, I, I think I've talked about it on this show before, but it's the kind of character my mom would have loved, mm-hmm. right, where he's just kind of flamboyant and over the top, and they give him this ridiculous accent for no big for no reason at all, just so that it can be this running gag that the that the mom and the daughter can can understand him, but Steve Martin can't. You know, it just it seemed like there was a lot of planning for a wedding to be at home. You know, and then even though it, the wedding itself just ends up being very poorly planned, like five hundred some odd people. They want five hundred seventy two people for a wedding in somebody's house. Yeah, you know, and the part that gets me is you and I have both been to plenty of weddings. You know. The, the fact that they make, like, Steve Martin's character miss out on all these key parts at the wedding. Oh, he missed the father-daughter dance, or mm-hmm. he missed this, and he missed that. And I don't know about you, every wedding I've ever been to, they will stop the mm-hmm. wedding until the dad is available. You know, yeah. where's the dad at? Oh, he's over there. Okay, well, get him in here. we got to do this. They will not proceed. But this one, it's like, oh, no, let's just get it through so we can go womp womp. Poor Steve Martin has missed all these moments. I didn't like it. I didn't like that. And, again, I'll let you... And by saying, what did you think of the Martin Short character, uh, the wedding planner? I, when I was getting ready to watch this film, I was texting a friend who had seen it, um, a female friend, and her response was just, Frank. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I don't know what that means. And then as soon as Martin Short showed up, my first thought was back to three fugitives, full on Marty. And, full on Marty. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it, it's it's a stereotypical character that was probably very hilarious 30 years ago. But at this point, it's a sad um, caricature that just screams lazy writing. And I say that, and I, I have my complaints about him. And I say that as somebody who loves three amigos and loves inner space, mm-hmm. you know, which were, which would have just been a few years before this and three fugitives. Uh, uh, it was it got it got on my nerves really quickly. Yeah. Uh, my, the last thing I'll say, just my final thoughts on the movie is, like I said, it has a heart to it, but it's a bit of a mess. And I I do not know who would ever get married in January. I, I don't know if that was another plot point so that we could have snow come down in California. Yeah. I, I yeah, I the less I, I'm ready to move on. Chad, do you have okay. any final thoughts on the film? No, I'll save it for my review. All right. Well, from a touch don't touch perspective, I, I mean, there's no reason why this could have been a Disney film. I think there's one joke. That gets that was used in every TV spot and trailer where the the bride and groom are going out and Steve Martin says, "Don't forget to fasten your condom." Instead of saying, "Fasten your seatbelt," and so maybe that was a little bit too risque for it to be for it to be a Disney movie. But otherwise, I think it could have very easily been a Disney film. Um, you and I both have our issues with the film, but what did the critics have to say, Chad? Did they have any issues with it? Well, you know, looking at reviews always surprises me. You know, Billy Bathgate, I thought would be higher, not not too uh, not too favorable of reviews, but 
Here we go again with Roger Ebert, and he says, Father of the Bride is not as ambitious or as insightful as Parenthood, the film it should probably be linked with in Martin's career. Its truths are more sweet and gentle, but it's one of the movies with a lot of smiles and laughter in it, and a good feeling all the way through. Three stars. Mm-hmm. Henry Sheehan from Hollywood Reporter says, This touchstone remake of Father of the Bride, the 1950 MGM feature starring Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor, has taken Cinti Minnelli's resonant human comedy and reduced it to a series of sitcom gags about the awful bother of throwing a $150,000 wedding. Okay. And then Owen Gleiberman from Entertainment Weekly to round out the reviews says, In the end, Shire douses the comedy in teary sentiment. He has staged a wedding scene it would be hard not to cry at. This feel-good finale might even feel better, though, if it had any true connection to the pat, amiable, and rather dawdling farce that preceded it. B-. minus. Okay. Well, what did you think, Chad, on a scale of 1 to 10? I, I was very surprised at this film because even though I hadn't seen it, I am very much aware of it. I know it was a success. Um, you know, so much that we will be watching the sequel in a few episodes down the road. But mm-hmm. I was very surprised at how much I didn't like this film. And mm. and I'm gi- I'm going to go, I'm giving this movie a five simply because I understand people do like it. And if you're not a huge critical cine- you know, movie watcher, you will probably enjoy this film and I'll give it to them. Those people who can enjoy films just for entertainment. But I was very, very shocked at how, again, how mean spirited Steve Martin is, how it's just not a funny comedy, but yeah. And and I will ask you real quick. Did you realize that Steve Martin plays a character named George Banks, who is probably right now an alcoholic somewhere waiting for uh, my comment gets ruined because I can't think of the actor's name from saving Mr. Banks. Um, uh, the less said about that movie, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, Mr. Banks. Yeah. I, yeah. I no. I, like I said, I, we've talked about it enough. I was in that fence where I was, I was prepared to give this movie a four mm-hmm. out of 10, but then I always said like, if it's, if I want to watch it again, it's a five. And I, this is one of those ones that the more I did the research on it, and the more I read into it, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I can give this another chance. And I wonder if it would make more sense for me if I had children, you mm-hmm. know. But so I'm going to go ahead and give this a five. Again, yeah. the cast is great. And like I said, it put a smile on my face. But, you know, it was just there. It's very empty and fluffy. And there's not really a whole lot to it. Yeah. But apparently it was popular enough because it was rem- or it, they had a sequel four years later in 1995 with father of the bride part two. I did not realize this, but the original father of the bride from 1950 also had a sequel that came out the year later, 1951. It was called father's little dividend. And there was a TV series that was based on the original film, which ran for one season in 1961, 62. And it had 34 episodes. Yeah. Uh, I know there's been some talk about them possibly doing a reboot of father of the bride for Disney plus. I would not be surprised if that comes to be at some point, you know, since they have apparently have the rights to this property in some fashion. But from a trivia standpoint, I didn't see a whole lot outside of just the normal, um, you know, with how the characters felt about their, how the actors felt about their characters. Um, The wedding dress that Kimberly Williams wears, you know, was modeled after Grace Kelly's real life wedding gown. I did see something that said that supposedly when, when Kimberly Williams married the country singer, Brad Paisley, they had kind of like a barbecue picnic type wedding 
even though that's the wedding that she does not want in this movie that Steve Martin had planned for her. Um, I totally missed this one, Chad. Did you see there's a scene when Steve Martin says, you know, he doesn't want to have the wedding bankrupt him. So he'll end up wandering the streets in a bathrobe which is just a reference to the, that famous scene at, near the end of The Jerk. I, I totally missed. I, yeah. Again, maybe because I tuned out of the film at some point, maybe. <laughs> maybe. And, you know, I think I've only seen The Jerk once when we saw it a few years ago at uh, the Arrow Theater, which we always have to get a plug for uh, sure. on the show. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm not familiar with that part of The Jerk, um, so it didn't, it didn't stand out to me. Oh, yeah. Um, and then there's another one, too, I was going to ask if you remembered. According to IMDb, there's an actor named Tom Irish, who plays a character named Ben Banks, who's a relative in the film. He's in the original Father of the Bride, which was his film debut, and then he has a, a cameo in this movie, and it was his final film. I do not remember a character of Ben Banks. I tried Googling like images of him in this film, and all I got was images from the first film. Yeah. It looked like he had done a bunch of acting in the 50s and a little bit in the 60s and had retired, hmm. and then they just brought him out of retirement to do this one movie, and then... You know, and that was it wasn't really he wasn't he didn't think he was a working actor much anymore. But it's a neat little trivia factoid. But if it was a character that I don't even remember in the film. Right. Um, lastly, and I'm going to have to hunt this down. But the the house that the, that the Banks family lives in is located in Pasadena. And according to the AFI's website, there's a story that the local residents in Pasadena did not want films to shoot in that neighborhood. They hadn't allowed a film to shoot there since the 1959 Doris Day Rock Hudson film Pillow Talk. Ah, so good. Um, but they agreed to support the filming of Father of the Bride in the neighborhood, supposedly due to the name recognition of Steve Martin and Diane Keaton. So I'm going to have to go find that house. By the, time, by the time this episode comes out, maybe I will have pictures of me in front of that house. So you got to go track it down. Uh, Looking at the soundtrack, you know, it's a combination of standards. Like, like I mentioned, I had the amazing "The Way You Look Tonight" from the beginning. Uh, of course, it also has songs about marriage. You know, we got Chapel of the Love, Chapel of Love, which we'd heard in Betsy's wedding. There's also a really great Darling Love song, Today I Met the Boy I'm Going to Marry. And there's also a really interesting use of the of the song My Girl. There's that scene when he's playing, they're playing basketball together. And that scene goes on for quite a while. Again, maybe it's padding out the runtime, but it does kind of give you like a good, good insight into their relationship and something different. A, a nice montage of them playing basketball over the temptations. Uh, so let's just go ahead and look at the box office performance. As I mentioned, it opened on December 20th, and it finished in second place with $7 million. The first place film was Hook. We mentioned that a minute, minute ago. The only other film that opened wide that same weekend was JFK, Oliver Stone's film. Yes. Interestingly, interestingly enough, in its second week, Father of the Bride made more movie, made more money, excuse me, made $10.5 million, but it finished third behind Hook and Beauty and the Beast. But it's got great legs. It jumps back up to second place in its third weekend, and it makes another $9 million. For the entire month of January, it ends up staying in the top five. And I see there's other films that kind of drop in. They finish ahead of Father of the Bride in their opening weekend, and then they fall right back out the following week. And Father of the Bride just kind of hovers. You get movies like Juice and Free Jack. I think I saw Free Jack on cable back in the day. That's the Milo Estevez Mick Jagger movie, right? Yeah. Um, but so that, so that holiday season, it ends up, like I said, it has a good job hovering around the top five. The other films that it has to compete with include, uh, the Prince of Tides. Uh, we get limited releases of, we mentioned Grand Canyon. There's also Fried Green Tomatoes, which was quite successful. Uh, there's Shining Through, the Melanie Griffith film, and also a movie we're going to talk about soon with the Hollywood picture film, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which was quite successful at the beginning of 1992. Um, 
Father of the Bride does somehow manage to stay in the top 10 throughout the, all the way up to the beginning of February. I noticed that Valentine's Day uh, was, was the Friday of President's Day weekend in 1992. So it, I'm, Father of the Bride still hovering around. It gets pushed down by some new films such as Final Analysis. Uh, there's a Hollywood picture film called Medicine Man. Uh, Wayne's World. I forgot Wayne's World opened on Valentine's Day. I remember seeing it in the theater. May have been opening weekend. I mean, I would have been single. So I didn't realize it actually came out on Valentine's Day. And then also Disney re-releases The Great Mouse Detective right around that same time in February. But um, after a solid run of about three to four months, Father of the Bride leaves theaters. It grosses $89.3 million on a budget of only $20 million. And, you know, it's so funny. Was, I was thinking 1991, $89 million, I was like, I bet you that probably cracked the top 20. Oh, it cracked the top 10. It finished ninth. At the year-end box office, and just with 89 million, like if you open a movie with 89 million dollars <laughs> right now, that's sometimes not considered a, a success, depending on the budget. But again, when your budget's only 20 million, that's pretty good. Well, I was like, look at the awards consideration. There's that Young Artist Award we always talk about. Kieran Culkin gets nominated for the Best Young Actor Co-Starring in a Motion Picture. I, I thought this was interesting. He loses to Jimmy Workman. From the Adams family, he had played what's it, Pugsley? Is that the Adams Pugsley, yeah. the boy? Yeah, Christina Ricci gets nominated for Best Act Actress, not a co-star, but lead. I'm like, but aren't they like brother and sister? I didn't know that one <laughs> would be considered a lead versus a co-star. Uh, the film does get two nominations at the 1992 MTV Movie Awards. Kimberly Williams is nominated for Best Breakthrough Performance. She loses to Edward Furlong <laughs> in Terminator 2. And Steve Martin gets nominated for the best comedic performance, and he loses to Billy Crystal in City Slickers. I think a much superior performance. <laughs> uh, if you remember the 1992 Movie Awards, if I remember correctly, I think that was the first year that they were held. And Terminator 2 like was was the big winner. It got it gets eight nominations. It wins six awards, including Best Picture. It gets Best Male and Best Female performance for Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton. I did see that one of the films, one of the awards that it didn't get which I was really disappointed with, was Best Song for oh. the You Could Be Mine by Guns N' Roses. Yeah. It got nominated, but it loses to uh, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, oh. Brian Adams, which yeah, is to be makes expected. Sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Going back to the Young Artist Award, though, real quick, uh, YouTube rabbit-holing the, the other night, I found the 1992 Young Artist Award ceremony. Really? And I think um, we may have to add to our Patreon list of things that don't actually exist if we get enough i think we should do a bonus episode watching the young artist awards show <laughs> that could be interesting i i yeah i wonder i, I don't even know if we, i think it might still exist in some capacity but yeah i, I, yeah, I looked it up it. i think the last one was in 2018 2017 or 2018 that was oh, listed okay. on wikipedia so oh wow interesting all right well Again, we, I'd like to wrap up by looking at connections with other franchises. I could find no James Bond or Alfred Hitchcock connections. I think when we go into 1992, I may have to drop these because it seems like we're getting further and further away from mostly British films, which would be, you know, James Bond and Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, personal, from a personal connection standpoint, I think we mentioned it on the Good Mother episode. But, yes, I did pass Diane Keaton in a crosswalk one time as I was going to my doctor's office in Brentwood. She was covered head to toe. She had a big floppy hat. Had gloves on her hand. She was eating an ice cream cone because there's a Baskin Robbins right across the street. It was one of those. Hey, wait a minute. Is that her? Yeah. Yeah, it was her. Um, I know we talked about it on our Mr. Destiny episode, but Chad, you went to a taping of According to Jim. Kimberly Williams, was she there that day? 
She was, yes. Um, I don't remember much about that because I've tried to block that day out of my memory. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm sure she was there. So, Yeah, and lastly, I know that Steve Martin and Martin Short do lots of public appearances around town. See, Martin does concerts with his band, the Steep Canyon yeah. Rangers. Mm-hmm. I believe they're called I Have Not seen either of them in person chat have you gone to any of the steve martin shows i've seen steve martin twice i saw him after the album with Edie perkel came out um i saw them and then a year later they did i think the july 4th three days at the hollywood bowl and i went back and and saw them again and i highly recommend if you get the chance uh go see them Uh, steep canyon rangers are an incredible musical band steve martin is a fantastic performer and, and and i like the music and Steve Martin plays banjo, which I think is the greatest. That and the keytar are like neck and neck for greatest instrument ever invented. <laughs> yeah, again, we, we love Steve Martin. He's a national treasure, but I also feel like with this movie, man, yeah. I just, the, we, we've said our piece, and I think it's time to just let Father of the Bride go. Yeah. How did you uh, take the news, George? Me? Uh, truthfully, I, I was a little surprised I was shocked. So was oh. I. After all, they'd only known each other a few months. Exactly, and Annie's just finishing up school. Mm. Absolutely. Oh, believe me, I tossed and turned over this one, but the bottom line is they're in love. They're over 21, and whether they're rushing into this or not, maybe not for us to say. <laughs> right. Not for us to say. We're only their parents. I was about to say these very words out loud when he hit me with... Yeah, sooner or later, you just have to... Let your kids go and hope you brought them up right. So in conclusion, um, we always like to look and see if the films that Touchstone put out on this particular episode fit the Disney ideal. You know, we've got an ambitious gangster picture and a family film released around the holidays. Why not, Chad? I mean, I I guess I give them credit. We may have had our issues with Father of the Bride, but I think they did a good job with these two movies. A movie that was not necessarily critically acclaimed and bombed, but yet you and I both like it 30 years later, (laughs) and a movie that we didn't like but that was quite successful back in the day. So it kind of balances out. Yeah, I think Father of the Bride had home run, you know, written all over it. Billy Bathgate, I think, is an underappreciated gem that, uh, yeah, just for whatever reason, didn't get the love that it probably should have. And Father of the Bride is, I think, it's standard holiday fare. Yeah, I mean, always like to look and see what other films that were released by Walt Disney Pictures during the same time period. Hollywood Pictures was done for the year. They're going to have a very, very prolific 1992, releasing more films than Touchstone does. And then, But Walt Disney Pictures had one film come out around that same time frame. Again, it was Beauty and the Beast, which we mentioned earlier. It was released on November 15th. I thought this was pretty fascinating. Beauty and the Beast never once topped a weekend box office chart. But it did finish second on the, the weekend after Christmas. It ends up being in theaters all the way until April ultimately grossing $146 million. It earned six Oscar nominations, including three different nominations for Best Song, and it becomes the first feature-length animated films to be nominated for Best Picture. It finishes third on the year-end box office chart. Third on the year-end box office chart, Chad, without ever finishing first on a weekend chart. That just blows my mind, yeah. All right, well, let's look at it. Give me an idea of what we're going to talk about in the next episode. Well, that's what well, we, as I said, we wrapped up 1991. So we're going to give our picks for the Ronnie Awards and do a little look at the year in review. Also, we're going to talk a little bit about the something I've been wanting to do for a while is when 1992 rolls around, Touchstone kind of scales back their output, and Walt Disney Pictures 
and Hollywood pictures pick up a little bit. So we're going to try to do a little bit of a revamp of the show, which I think we'll talk a little bit about more on the next episode when we do our 1991 year in review. So as I mentioned, my name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter account, which is at Out of Touchstone. If you want to email us, it's outoftouchstone at gmail.com. My co-host, Chad Smart, he's also on Twitter at Chad Smart. He is the proprietor of the Positive Cynicism Podcasting Network, hashtag PCPN. Chad, do you have anything to say before we go home? We've come to an end of another year. Who knows what next year is going to bring, but I say, well, we'll find out in, in two episodes. But next week, your next episode, the Ronnies could be the biggest Ronnies ever. Oh, that's a tease. Yeah. I don't really know if that's true or not, but I, th I hope the hype, you will believe it and tune in. This is out of touchstone and we are out of time. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool. Thank you. Good night.